Chapter Eleven of The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter Eleven. The hope of meeting with more consideration in the family inspirited Ellis with a wish, hitherto unfelt, of contributing to the purposed entertainment. The part which she had been obliged to undertake was too prominent to be placed in the background, and the whole performance must be flat, if not ridiculous, unless Lady Townley were a principal person. She read over, therefore, repeated, and studied the character, with an attention more alive to its meaning, style, and diversities, and the desire which animated all that she attempted, of doing with her best means whatever unavoidably must be done, determined her to let no effort in her power be wanting, to enliven the representation. The lateness of this resolution made her application for its accomplishment so completely fill up her time that not a moment remained for those fears of self-deficiency with which diffidence and timidity enervate the faculties and often in sensitive minds rob them of the powers of exertion when the hour of exhibition approached and she was summoned to the apartment destined for the green-room universal astonishment was produced by her appearance it was not from her dress they had seen and already knew it to be fanciful and fashionable nor was it the heightened beauty which her decorations displayed. This, as she was truly lovely, was an effect that they expected. But it was from the ease with which she wore her ornaments, the grace with which she set them off, the elegance of her deportment, and an air of dignified modesty, that spoke her not only accustomed to such attire, but also to the good breeding and refined manners which announced the habits of life to have been formed in the superior classes of society. Selina, as she opened the door, exultingly called out, "'Look, look, only look at Ellis! Did you ever see anything in the world so beautiful?' Ireton, to whom dress, far more than feature or complexion, presented attraction, exclaimed, "'By my soul she's as handsome as an angel!' Eleanor, thus excited, came forward, but seemed struck speechless. They now all flocked around her, and Mrs. Maple, staring, cried, "'Why, who did you get to put your things on for you?' When suddenly, recollecting the new account which she had herself given, and caused to be spread of this young person, she forced a laugh, and added, "'Bless me, Miss Ellis, if I had not quite forgotten whom I was speaking to. Why should not Miss Ellis know how to dress herself as well as any other young lady? Why, indeed, said Miss Bidle, it makes a prodigious change, a young lady's turning out a young lady, instead of a common young woman. I've seen a good many of the Ellises. Pray, ma'am, does your part of the family come from Yorkshire or Devonshire, for I should like to know? And if there were any gentlemen of your family with you, ma'am, in foreign parts— said Mr. Scope, I should be glad to have their opinion of this convention now set up in France. For as to ladies, though they are certainly very pleasing, they are but indifferent judges in the political line, not having ordinarily heads of that sort. I speak without offence, inferiority of understanding being no defect in a female. 
"'Well, I thought from the first,' said young Gooch, "'and I said it to sisters, that the young lady was a young lady, by her travelling in that. But pray, ma'am, did you ever look on, to see that Mr. Robert Spear mow down his hundreds, like a grass in a hayfield? We should not much like it if they were to do so in England, but the French have no spirit. They are but a poor set, except their generals, or the like of that. And for them, they'll fight you like so many lions. They are afraid of nobody.' "'By what I hear, ma'am,' said Mr. Stubbs, "'a gentleman in that country may have rents due to the value of thousands, "'and hardly receive a frog, as one may say, an acre.' While thus her fellow-performers surrounded the incognita, Harleigh alone held back, absorbed in contemplating the fine form which a remarkably light and pretty robe now first displayed and the beautiful features, and animated complexion, which were set off to their utmost lustre, by the waving feathers, and artificial flowers, which were woven into her soft, glossy, luxuriant brown hair. But though he forbore offering her any compliments, he no sooner observed that she was seized with a sudden panic, upon a servant's announcing that the expected audience, consisting of some of the principal families of Sussex, was arrived, then he addressed, and endeavoured to encourage her. "'I am aware, sir,' she said, "'that it may seem rather like vanity than diffidence for one situated as I am to feel any alarm, for as I can have raised no expectations, what have I to fear from giving any disappointment? Nevertheless, now the time is come, the attempt grows formidable. It must seem so strange.' so wondrous strange, to those who know not how little my choice has been consulted. She was interrupted, for all was ready, and Harleigh was summoned to open the piece by the famous question, Why did I marry? The fright which now had found its way into the mind of the new Lady Townley, augmented every moment till she appeared and it was then so great as nearly to make her forget her part, and occasion what, hesitatingly, she was able to utter, to be hardly audible, even to her fellow-performers. The applause excited by her beauty, figure, and dress, only added to her embarrassment. She with difficulty kept to her post, and finished her first scene with complete self-discontent. Eleanor, who watched her throughout it, lost all admiration of her exterior attractions, from contempt of her feeble performance. But her second scene exhibited her in another point of view. Her self-displeasure worked her up to exertions that brought forth the happiest effects, and her evident success produced ease by inspiring courage. From this time her performance acquired a wholly new character. It seemed the essence of gay intelligence, of well-bred animation, and of lively variety. The grace of her motions made not only every step but every turn of her head remarkable. Her voice modulated into all the changes that vivacity, carelessness, pride, pleasure, indifference, or alarm demanded. Every feature of her face spoke her discrimination of every word while the spirit which gave a charm to the whole was chastened by a taste the most correct and while though modest she was never awkward though frightened never ungraceful a performance such as this in a person young beautiful and wholly new created a surprise so powerful and a delight so unexpected that the play seemed soon to have no other object than lady townley 
and the audience to think that no other were worth hearing or beholding. For though the politeness exacted by a private representation secured to every one an apparent attention, all seemed vapid and without merit in which she was not concerned, while all wore an air of interest in which she bore the smallest part, and she soon never spoke, looked, nor moved, but to excite pleasure, admiration, and applause, amounting to rapture. Whether this excellence were the result of practice and instruction, or a sudden emanation of general genius, accidentally directed to a particular point, was disputed by the critics amongst the audience, and disputed, as usual, with the greater vehemence, from the impossibility of obtaining documents to decide, or direct opinion. But that which was regarded as the highest refinement of her acting, was a certain air of inquietude, which was discernible through the utmost gaiety of her exertions, and which, with the occasional absence and sadness, that had their source in her own disturbance, was attributed to deep research into the latent subject of uneasiness belonging to the situation of Lady Townley. This, however, was nature, which would not be repressed, not art, that strove to be displayed. But no pleasure excited by her various powers, approached to the pleasure which they bestowed upon Harleigh, who could look at, could listen to her alone. To himself he lost all power of doing justice, wrapped up in the contemplation of an object thus singular, thus excelling, thus mysterious, all ambition to personally shining was forgotten. He could not fail to speak his part with sense and feeling, he could not help appearing fashioned to represent a man of rank and understanding, but that address which gives life and meaning to every phrase, that ingenuity which beguiles the audience into an illusion, which for the current moment inspires the sympathy due to reality, that skill which brings forth on the very instant all the effect which, to the closet reader, an author can hope to produce from reflection these the attributes of good acting and for which his taste his spirit and his judgment all fitted him were now from slackened self-attention beyond his reach though within his powers at a public theatre such an actress might have proved a spur to have urged the exertions of competition in this private one where success except to vanity was unimportant her merit was to harleigh an absorbent that occupied, exclusively, all his faculties. In the last act, where Lady Townley becomes serious, penitent, and pathetic, the new actress appeared to yet greater advantage. The state of her mind accorded with distress, and her fine speaking eyes, her softly touching voice, her dejected air, and penetrating countenance, made quicker passage to the feelings of her auditors, even than the words of the author, all were moved, tears were shed from almost every eye, and Harleigh, affected and enchanted, at the moment of the peacemaking, took her hand with so much eagerness, and pressed it to his lips with so much pleasure, that the rouge, put on for the occasion, was paler than the blushes which burnt through it on her cheeks. He saw this, and, checking his admiration, relinquished with respect the hand which he had taken nearly with rapture. When the play was over, and the loudest applause had marked its successful representation, the company arose to pay their compliments to Mrs. Maple. Lady Townley then, followed by every eyes, 
was escaping from bearing her share in the bursts of general approbation, when a youth of the most engaging appearance, and evidently of high fashion, sprang over the forms to impede her retreat, and to pour forth the highest encomiums upon her performance, in well-bred though enthusiastic language, with all the eager vivacity of early youth, which looks upon moderation as insipidity, and measured condemnation as want of feeling. Though confused by being detained, Ellis could not be angry, for there was no impertinence in his fervour, no familiarity in his panegyric, and though his speech was rapid, his manners were gentle. His eulogy was free from any presumption of being uttered for her gratification. It seemed simply the uncontrollable ebullition of ingenious gratitude. Surprised still more than all around her, at the pleasure which she found she had communicated, some share of it now stole insensibly into her own bosom, and this was by no means lessened by seeing her youthful new admirer, soon followed by a lady still younger than himself, who called out, "'Do you think, brother, to monopolize Miss Ellis?' and, with equal delight and nearly equal ardour, she joined in the acknowledgments made by her brother, for the entertainment which they had received, and both united in declaring that they should never endure to see or hear any other Lady Tanley. There was a charm, for there seemed a sincerity in this youthful tribute of admiration, that was highly gratifying to the new actress, and Harleigh thought he read in her countenance the soothing relief experienced by a delicate mind from meeting with politeness and courtesy, after a long endurance of indignity or neglect. Almost everybody among the audience, one by one, joined this little set, all eager to take a nearer view of the lovely Lady Townley, and availing themselves of the opportunity afforded by this season of compliment, for examining more narrowly whom it was that they addressed. Mrs. Maple, meanwhile, suffered the utmost perplexity. Far from foreseeing an admiration which thus bore down all before it, she had conceived that, the piece once finished, the actress would vanish, and be thought of no more. Nor was she without hope, in her utter disdain of the stranger, that the part thus given merely by necessity, would be so ill-represented, as to disgust her niece from any such frolics in future. But when, on the contrary, she found that there was but one voice in favour of this unknown performer, when not all her own pride, nor all her prejudice, could make her blind that performer's truly elevated carriage and appearance, when every auditor flocked to her, with, "'Who is this charming Miss Ellis? Present us to this incomparable Miss Ellis!' She felt covered with shame and regret, though compelled, for her own credit, to continue repeating that she was a young lady of family who had passed over with her from the continent. Provoked, however, she now followed the crowd, meaning to give a hint to the incognita to retire. But she had the mortification of hearing her gallant new enthusiast pressing for her hand, in a cotillion, which they were preparing to dance. And though the stranger gently, yet steadily, was declining his proposition, Mrs. Maple was so much frightened and irritated that such a choice should be in her power, that she called out impatiently, "'My lord, we must have some refreshments before the dancing. Do pray, Lady Aurora Granville, beg Lord Melbury to come this way and take something.' The young lord and lady, with civil but cold thanks, that spoke their dislike of this interference, 
both desired to be excused. But great was their concern, and universal throughout the apartment, was the consternation, upon observing Miss Ellis change colour, and sink upon a chair, almost fainting. Harleigh, who had strongly marked the grace and dignity with which she had received so much praise, now cast a glance of the keenest indignation at Mrs. Maple, attributing to her rude interruption of the little civilities so evidently softening to the stranger, this sudden indisposition. But Mrs. Maple either saw it not, or did not understand it, and seized, with speed, the opportunity of saying, that Miss Ellis was exhausted by so much acting, and of desiring that some of the maids might help her to her chamber. Eleanor stood suspended, looking not at her, but at Harleigh. Every one else came forward with inquiry, fans, or sweet-scented vials. But Ellis, a little reviving, accepted the salts of Lady Aurora Granville, and, leaning against her waist, which her arm involuntarily encircled, breathed hard and shed a torrent of tears. "'Why don't the maids come?' cried Mrs. Maple. "'Selina, my dear, do call them. Lady Aurora, I am quite ashamed. Miss Ellis, what are you thinking of to lean so against her ladyship? Pray, Mr. Ireton, call the maids for me.' "'Call no one, I beg,' cried Lady Aurora. "'Why should I not have the pleasure of assisting Miss Ellis?' And, bending down, she tried better to accommodate herself to the ease and relief of her new acquaintance, who appeared the more deeply sensible of her kindness, from the ungenerous displeasure which it evidently excited in Mrs. Maple. And when, in some degree recovered, she rose to go, she returned her thanks to Lady Aurora, with so touching a softness, with tearful eyes, and in a voice so plaintive, that Lady Aurora, affected by her manner, and charmed by her merit, desired still to support her, and, entreating that she would hold by her arm, begged permission of Mrs. Maple to accompany Miss Ellis to her chamber. Mrs. Maple recollecting, with the utmost confusion, the small and ordinary room allotted for Ellis, so unlike what she would have bestowed upon such a young lady as she now described for her fellow voyager, found no resource against exposing it to Lady Aurora, but that of detaining the object of her compassionate admiration. She stammered, therefore, out that as Miss Ellis seemed so much better, there could be no reason why she should not stay below, and see the dance. Ellis gladly curtsied her consent, and the watchful Harleigh, in the alacrity of her acceptance, rejoiced to see a revival to the sentiments of pleasure, which the acrimonious grossness of Mrs. Maple had interrupted. Lord Melbury now took the hand of Selina, and Harleigh that of Lady Aurora. Elinor would not dance, but, seating herself, fixed her eyes upon Harleigh, whose own were almost perpetually wandering, to watch those of his dramatic consort. Since the first scene in which the stranger had so ill entered into the spirit of Lady Townley's character, Elinor had ceased to deem her worthy of observation, and, giving herself up wholly to her own part, had not witnessed the gradations of the improvements of Ellis, her rising excellence, nor her final perfection. In her own representation of Lady Wronghead, she piqued herself upon producing new effects, and had the triumph, by her cleverness and eccentricities, her grotesque attitudes and attire, and an unexpected and burlesque manner of acting, to bring the part into a consequence of which it had never appeared susceptible. Happy in the surprise and diversion she occasioned, and constantly occupied how to augment it, 
she only learnt the high success of Lady Townley, by the bursts of applause, and the unbounded admiration and astonishment, which broke forth from nearly every mouth, the instant that the audience and the performers were united. Amazed, she turned to Harleigh to examine the merits of such praise. But Harleigh, no longer silent, cautious, or cold, was himself one of the admiring throng, and so openly, and with an air of so much pleasure, that she could not catch his attention for any critical discussion. After two country dances, and two cotillions, the short ball was broken up, and Lady Aurora hastened to seat herself by Miss Ellis, and Lord Melbury to stand before and to converse with her, followed by all the youthful part of the company, to whom she seemed the sovereign of a little court which came to pay her homage. Harleigh grew every instant more enchanted, for as she discoursed with her two fervent new admirers, her countenance brightened into an animation so radiant, her eyes became so lustrous, and smiles of so much sweetness and pleasure embellished every feature, that he almost fancied he saw her now for the first time, though her welfare, or her distress, had for more than a month chiefly occupied his mind. "'Who art thou?' thought he, as incessantly he contemplated her. "'Where hast thou thus been formed, and for what art thou designed?' Supper being now announced, Mrs. Maple commissioned Harleigh to lead Lady Aurora downstairs, adding, with a forced smile of civility, that Miss Ellis must consult her health in retiring. "'Yes, ma'am, and Miss Ellis knows,' cried Lady Aurora, offering her arm, "'who is to be her chevalier?' Again embarrassed, Mrs. Maple saw no resource against exposing her shabby chamber, but that of admitting its occupier to the supper-table. She hastily, therefore, asked whether Miss Ellis thought herself well enough to sit up a little longer, adding, "'For my part, I think it will do you good.' "'The greatest!' cried Ellis, with a look of delight, and, to the speechless consternation of Mrs. Maple, Lord Melbury, calling her the Queen of the Night, took her hand to conduct her to the supper-room. Ellis would have declined this distinction, but that the vivacity of her ardent new friend precipitated her to the staircase, ere she was aware that she was the first to lead the way thither. Gaily, then, he would have placed her in the seat of honour, as Lady President of the evening, but, more now upon her guard, she insisted upon standing till the visitors should be arranged, as she was herself a resident in the house. Lord Mulberry, however, quitted her not, and would talk to no one else, and finding that his seat was destined to be next to that of Mrs. Maple, who called him to her side, he said that he never supped, and would therefore wait upon the ladies. And drawing a chair behind that of Ellis, he devoted himself to conversing with her, upon her part, upon the whole play, and upon dramatic works, French and English, in general with the eagerness with which such subjects warm the imagination of youth, and with a pleasure which made him monopolize her attention. Harleigh listened to every word to which Ellis listened, or to which she answered, and scarcely knew whether most to admire her good sense, her intelligent quickness, her elegant language, or the meaning eyes, and varied smiles which she spoke before she spoke, and shewed her entire conception of all to which she attended. No one now could address her, she was completely engrossed by the young nobleman, who allowed her not time to turn from him a moment. 
such honours shown to a pauper, a stroller, a vagabond, and all in the present instance, from her own unfortunate contrivance, Mrs. Maple considered as a personal disgrace, a sensation which was threefold increased when the party broke up, and Lady Aurora, taking the chair of her brother, rallied him upon the envy which his situation had excited, while, in the most engaging manner, she hoped, during her sojourn at Brighthelmstone, to frequently have the good fortune of taking her revenge. Then, joining in their conversation, she became so pleased, so interested, so happy, that twice Mrs. Howell, the lady under whose care she had been brought to lose, reminded her ladyship that the horses were waiting in the cold, before she could prevail upon herself to depart. And even then that lady was forced to take her gently by the arm, to prevent her from renewing the conversation which she most unwillingly finished. "'Pardon me, dear madam,' said Lady Aurora, "'I am quite ashamed, but I hope, while I am so happy as to be with you, that you will yourself conceive a fellow-feeling how difficult it is to tear oneself away from Miss Ellis.' "'What honour your ladyship does me!' cried Ellis, her eyes glistening. "'And, oh, how happy you have made me!' "'How kind you are to say so!' returned Lady Aurora, taking her hand. She felt a tear drop upon her own from the bent-down eyes of Ellis. Startled and astonished, she hoped that Miss Ellis was not again indisposed. Smilingly, yet in a voice that denoted extreme agitation, "'Lady Aurora alone,' she answered, "'can be surprised that so much goodness, so unlooked for, so unexpected, should be touching.' "'Oh, Mrs. Maple!' cried Lady Aurora, in taking leave of that lady. What a sweet creature is this Miss Ellis! Such talents and a sensibility so attractive, said Lord Melbury, never met before. Ellis heard them, and with a pleasure that seemed exquisite, yet that died away the moment that they disappeared. All then crowded round her, who had hitherto abstained, but she drooped, tears flowed fast down her cheeks. She curtsied the acknowledgments which she could not pronounce to her complimenters and inquirers, and mounted to her chamber. Mrs. Maple concluded her already so spoiled by the praises of Lord Melbury and Lady Aurora Granville, that she held herself superior to all other, and the company in general imbibed the same notion. Many disdain, or affect to disdain, the notice of people of rank for themselves, but all are jealous of it for others. Not such was the opinion of Harleigh. Her pleasure in their society seemed to him no more than renovation to feelings of happier days. Who, who, thought he again, canst thou be? And why, thus evidently accustomed to grace society, why art thou thus strangely alone, thus friendless, thus desolate, thus mysterious? End of chapter 11 Recording by Roxana Nazari